0: We wanna love like you. Love like
1: be with you this morning. Uh, And we are starting a new series this Sunday through the book of Ephesians. We have been talking about how to believe in God, very basics of Christianity. And so uh, beginning this fall, starting this Sunday, I want to discuss, like, let's say you're in a place where you're like, okay, uh, I believe in God. I want to know what that means for uh, this moment right now to, to live in community with others who also believe in God. If you're still investigating how to believe in God, that's great, too. Uh, the book of Ephesians speaks directly into that. I, uh, before we pray, I want to tell you two, two uh, little anecdotal stories. I was talking with one of you who grew up in church here and I was having lunch and I asked uh, this person. I was like, what is it? What, what's it like uh, for you coming to Redeemer?" And this person said, um, I'm always asking God every time I come, I'm always asking God to just please help me understand what's going on. Um, and when, it, when I heard that, I was like, you know, I'm the pastor and that's exactly how I feel, too. I'm like, what, what all are we what all are we doing here? Um, I, I got COVID back in November of this previous year. And as with most uh, people, or a lot of people that get COVID, you lose your sense of smell and taste. And uh, I did too. And this was over uh, Thanksgiving, which was just terrible timing to lose your, your smell and taste. And I remember cooking this big turkey, and it was beautiful. And, and, I, and I stood over it, and I sniffed as deep as I could, and absolutely nothing. Like zero smell at all. And then on the eighth day after I had gotten COVID, I ground some coffee beans and I've been drinking coffee for eight days with no taste or smell. And I had one faint hint of like, oh, that kind of smells like a coffee bean. And then slowly over the course of the next week, uh, my smell and taste came back to me. Um, What I think this passage does For the soul of a human being is that it's like a language or a smell that you are familiar with, but you don't quite understand it. You don't quite grasp it yet. And so as you heard Bruno read God's word to you, read God's word over you, uh, this passage just kind of washes over me and and I don't I don't quite get it. But there are hints of it that I'm like. That sounds like it's me. That sounds like it's eternally true. That's what we do when we pray. We're asking God to make what's eternally true uh, meet our reality in real time and space. That, that God would make us fluent in his language. That God would allow us to um, experience him like I experienced that coffee over the course of the next week when I was slowly get, getting my smell back. And so let, let's do that. Let's pray and that God would, by his spirit, make the, the words of uh, this book alive to us. Let's pray. Father, as always in these moments, every single week we come here and it very much seems like um, the the world or our experience, the circumstances that we're in, uh, swallow our consciousness in some ways, swallow what we want to be about in terms of our relationship with you. And then when we start to worship, um, the, the human soul was meant to be oriented towards you, was meant to be inclined towards you. And it is through the, the spirit, your spirit, who is here right now. Um, That makes us long for these things to be true. And not only that, uh, the spirit emboldens and embodies us to practice what it means to be holy, what it means to bear your image in this world, what it means to be fully alive as your image bearers. And so, Lord, as we see uh, you coming into the world through Jesus Christ, um, that you would teach us uh, one one main thing that we are your beloved and that you have blessed us beyond measure. So would you do that right now, in Christ's name, amen. So as uh, as many of you know, I used to do campus ministry with this organization called RUF, and I remember in my later years there, feeling very, very out of place. I remember um, realizing I'm not a part of the flow of campus anymore, and I, I began to... Uh, Realize that I'm not really thinking about what students are thinking about day in and day out, and so I, I would walk. I would walk on campus, and, and it wasn't like everyone was going one way, and I was like going in the opposite. But I was just there, like feeling ancient and different and strange, um, and that is to some great sense what the church is in the midst of the world. That you are an, an eternal community. In real time and real space, that is ancient, that was called out before the foundation of the world, and the Holy Spirit has placed us in the midst of the world to remind ourselves and our towns and wherever we live of, of two main things that Jesus Christ was real, and that he inhabits uh, the church, his body. Now, as as best as I can understand it, that's what the book of Ephesians is about. It's about Jesus in the church. And in our passage, Paul is doing what human beings at their core. This is what we long to do, whether we know it or not. He's so caught up with God that he's fumbling over his words. This is one really, really long sentence in Greek, like terrible grammar. He's just piling up praises, giving glory to God And uh, the the early church father, Irenaeus, uh, he says this. um, The glory of God is a human being fully alive. This passage is about every single person that has ever lived has an impulse in them to praise your creator. And that you will feel most alive. You will feel most yourself and everyone will recognize when you do that. That this is what you were made to do, and this is what I am made to do. To praise God at all times. According to Christianity, the human existence that is truly thriving is consumed with God despite their circumstances. So Paul takes that impulse in all of us, and he directs it at God for the first 14 verses of uh, this letter. And if you're anything like me, when you read a passage like this, it can very quickly... uh, Make you just go on to the next thing because it doesn't quite settle in, it doesn't sink in. And I'm convinced that what Paul is doing is that he's speaking our native language here. That he's he's speaking a language that you intuitively know in your soul is a language that you are supposed to speak, that you're made for, that you are meant to be fluent in the praise of God. And so what I want to do is focus uh, on three things that I think will help us get a glimpse of what Paul sees, his perspective. Um, Here are the three points. God's pleasure and our purpose. Point two, Jesus's work and our shame. And point three, the Holy Spirit's promise and our future. So God's pleasure and our purpose. Look at verses three through five. It says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him In love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, uh, right off the bat, we are going to be talking about something that Christians have argued about for centuries. And I'm going to say it up front because that's where Paul begins when he talks about being blessed by God or receiving the pleasure of God. And I just want to start uh, by saying, do you know that God feels pleasure? Do you know that uh, God um, wants to pour very, very good things onto you, which is the heart of being blessed, that God is so pleased with you if you're in Christ That He wants to give you every spiritual blessing that exists in in the spiritual realm, and that that's already yours in some way. And Paul says that He chose this church in modern-day Turkey, Ephesus, to be blameless and holy, and He predestined them in love to be adopted into His family. And I just want to stop right there and say a few things. Predestination simply means that God is in charge and we are not at its base level. That doesn't mean that we're robots. We have free will as human beings, but God is in charge. This doctrine here in in Ephesians is used as a pastoral encouragement for people who are very scared it's never meant, uh, predestination never meant to be used as something to argue about or to beat other people up with. And in verse 4, it says that, and this, this is the most wonderful part uh, of this point. Before the world was made, before you and I uh, were, okay? Before we could do anything to impress or unimpress God, you were the object of his affection. That you were chosen to be loved. Now, just let that sink in front. I know that's super meta. uh, But think about that. Think about what that does to very insecure and scared people that don't know what's going on around them. You ever been in a large crowd or traveled to a different country where no one believes or thinks like you do? Are you take COVID, for example, our entire world has been altered by something far larger than we are, but we can't even see it. You know, like, how did that happen? Psalm 8 talks about this. Everyone's tendency, when you feel the, the magnitude of the cosmos, your, your tendency is to think, I don't matter. I'm like a fuzzy gray blip on the system. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Boyhood um, a few years back, but... The main character after he graduated high school, he's asking his dad, like, what's the purpose of, of life? And his dad said, I, I don't know, man. We're all just trying to get through. And and the Bible is bold enough to answer that question. That the purpose of your life is to enjoy God and to let him enjoy you. And when that happens, you become a uh, holy you become spotless and blameless as a human being. Scripture always uses the teaching of God's election to call human beings into a life of holiness. What is holiness? It, it means that we were made to live face to face with God and to find pleasure in him. And I think uh, it's very, very easy for us today. For us to. Just. Just hyperly focus on our dysfunction to, to address one another as sinners it's easy to address one another as broken people because we are but that's only part of the truth and not the most dominant part if you're in Christ that when you approach me that when I approach you we are to see each other as God sees us which is eternally perfect. If I so, for instance, if I were to look you dead in the eye and you and you sense with all sincerity that I meant it, and I said, "You are a you are a godly woman. You're a holy man." What's your tendency? Like, ah, you don't, you don't know what I'm like behind closed doors. You don't know how insecure I am. And I think what this passage is doing is like, don't sidestep God's pleasure in you. Don't do the work of, take, of avoiding taking that in. Of knowing that you're beloved. Before the world was even made. You know, forget where, before you were made, but before a mountain was made. Before light was made. He loved you. If God calls you lovely... Who are you to say that you're not? It's the hardest truth to believe about Christianity. Period. It's much easier to wallow in our sinfulness and failure, but Paul is getting this church to imagine something different about themselves and imagine something different about how they relate to one another, that God is inclined towards them, that he's partial towards the church, Because they are blessed and in the beloved. Don't think right now about other people. Think about yourself. We all need this. Would you accept God's blessing over your life right now? Predestination at its core is pastoral. It's a comfort. If you're sitting here thinking... You know, if God loves me and there's nothing I can do to make him not love me, then I'm just going to do whatever I want. And anybody who's gone down that route knows that that's the ultimate path to misery. To do whatever you want is to be miserable in the end. God sets us apart. He predestined us to be royal in this world. And so we become holy and blameless when we know that we're pleased and uh, a pleasure to God. And so... Kings and queens of the earth, we don't watch Netflix seven hours a day. Uh, We don't addict ourselves to pornography and keep quiet about it. We don't sleep with somebody else that's not our spouse. If you're a holy student, you go to class. You pray for your teachers. You pray for the people around you in your class. You find a way into the lives of the people that are around you so as to bless them. And serve them. And the reason why is because when you believe that this is how God relates to you, you instinctively do it. That's what it means to be holy, that's what it means to be the image of God in the world. We work because we already have God's pleasure, and we feel His pleasure most when we are holy. Point one: God's pleasure, our purpose. Point two: Jesus's work, our shame. Look at verses seven through eight. A, um, I, you know, I'm going to be focused on on one very small aspect of what Jesus has done here. And there's so much in this passage that we can pick and choose, but uh, th- this is what it says: In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. Now, after that first point, uh, you might be like. Well, that that sounds good about being loved by God. But to be honest, like, I don't know how to do that. Like, I don't even know how to receive that. I want to be able to receive God's pleasure, but it's like I can't I can't even allow myself to rest enough to do that. Like my life is feel is filled with like all sorts of things that I don't want to do. And I can't seem to stop. So if that's you, one of the questions that we're all unconsciously asking is, what do I do with that? What do I do with my guilt, my shame, my sense of inadequacy? And that's part of why Jesus came. Uh, I had a friend once who lived with a sin that it just made her feel completely disgusting. She uh, She had told very few people about this part of her life, and she was one of the most lovable people I've ever known because she would do absolutely anything for you, anything. She was always on time. She was incredible at her job, high performer. She would sit and listen. This is the most amazing thing. She would listen to the most annoying person in the room with complete patience. And then one day, she came and told me and Sarah about this thing in her life that she was deeply ashamed of. And from that moment on, everything about the way that she interacted with us changed. Like she would, she would still come to church, uh, but she would leave right before communion crying to herself. And I finally asked her, I was like, Hey, what is, what's the deal? Like, I don't think any less of you. I'm not afraid of you. You belong here. And she very simply said, look, I think God can forgive other people, but I don't think he can forgive me. I'm worse than you. I'm not as you know, you're not as bad as me. I, I'm worse than the people around me. And and the gosp- the gospel says that the blood of Jesus can cover any sin and the blood of Jesus must cover every sin. That there's not a hierarchy here. That everybody gets close to Jesus in the same way, through his blood. Whether we sin little or big, we all struggle with this one one thing. We want to pay our own way. We don't don't want that. Or the fact that somebody had to do that for us. And so one of the things I want you to consider in your own life um, is that maybe the reason why you always feel like you have to do stuff for other people or that you always have to do stuff for, for God. If you're a Christian is that you live and are controlled by a deep sense of shame and guilt. And you really do feel like in your core, you feel like you have to do more than other people because you're worse than other people. And it comes out in subtle ways. Um, It can come out in a million million different ways. Like, does the thought of telling a waiter at a restaurant that your food is messed up and you send it back to the kitchen, does that just terrify you? Or has anyone ever bumped into you and you said that you're sorry? You know? Um, Or the brutality you may put your body through by not eating or eating too much or working out too much? And Jesus says, I, can't, I really can't make you whole. That's why I bled. That's why I came to earth. That's what my blood is for. That all that punishment, all that yuck was let out. And it can actually change people. It can give you rest in the midst of this world. But you must impose yourself on God. You must demand it. For him to make you whole. He likes when (laughs) he, he likes when human beings get really, really needy for him. And we start demanding that he show us grace. That's what he came to do. You know, just like my friend, she she was refusing to believe in a God who could possibly love her. And so how that translated into her life is that she lived with a high public performance. But she had a lot of private shame, and God wants to God wants to reverse your life to expose us, so we can stop working so hard. And and you know the, this verse actually uh, categorizes grace as wealth. That this is the true money, the true eternal money is to be forgiven. So that you can stop trying to please God and please other people all the time and know that you already have through Christ. And it's been my experience when I open myself up to being forgiven. uh, Jesus slowly allows me to forgive other people that have hurt me. That's in the Lord's Prayer. Point three, uh, the Holy Spirit's promise, our future, verses 11 through 14. And uh, a lot can be said here. I'm just going to focus on a few things in verse 12 when Paul says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, he's talking about we, the Jewish people. And then when he says in 13, in him, you or y'all also were sealed with the promise. Holy Spirit," he's talking about the Gentiles. So non-Jewish people. And what Paul just did there in that short little verse is that he set up the premise of what he's going to say in the entire letter. Which is that very different people in his case, Jew and Gentile were going to they were once were enemies. They were going to come together in Christ and it was going to be a small picture to the world of what the future humanity would look like, like a model home of heaven, like a model home of the community that exists in heaven right now and will continue to exist throughout all eternity. One that's not separated by race, culture, anything else that divides human beings up. And Paul says that the Holy Spirit functions as like a down payment in your very heart. Like a guarantee that these things are true and will come to fruition. That this whole humanity thing is actually real. And Paul wants us to imagine uh, people that are very different than us all over the world, whoever us is coming together because they have this seal that they received almost like a tattoo on your head that says you belong to God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit stamped on your head saying you are beloved of God, you are blessed of God, and that's how you ought to function in this world. And I can't overemphasize uh, this enough and that you could preach a whole sermon on this. But in verse 14, it says we have not fully acquired possession of this new way of being God's people yet. And Paul, what, what Paul's doing is that this is true of you right now, but it's not yet fully known. It's not yet fully consummated in this world. And what, what theologians have called this is that this is the doctrine of the already and the not yet. That this is already true of you in heaven, but it's not yet fully real right now, but it will be. What happened when God sent the Holy Spirit in the world is that all different types of people who looked differently, spoke differently, smelled differently, ate different food, preferred different sports, came together and they started loving each other. They began living life with each other in community, not assimilating into each other's cultures, but celebrating them and enjoying the differences. And they did that through the blood of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus gave up his rights, his preferences, his comforts so that we could do that with each other. There is no greater inheritance possible than to be adopted into God's holy family. And he says that the world... The nations are the inheritance that we are gaining, which means that the world is the playground of God's people. That's what we are to practice in Lincoln. That's why we're here. To give others a picture of what God says the future will look like. To practice the future in the present. Uh, I have a friend who is down in New Mexico. He's a pastor, and he said one of his... He he was encouraging other pastors that I'm in a group with, and he's like, guys, there are so many uh, holy people in our congregations that we often overlook. And he said uh, during the height of COVID, um, he was very out of sorts, my pastor buddy, about how disunified everything was. And a congregate in his church had a daughter who had had... uh, struggles with mental disabilities, and it seemed to be, uh, in some sense, have a, have a demonic element to it, and it got so severe that they had to move away from New Mexico to a different city uh, to get proper care. And uh, so he's asking, he's kind of talking to this, uh, the dad of this daughter, about how this unified the church is. And he said, Justin, um, Jesus, Jesus Christ has already purchased by his blood the unity of the church. And that will not change. That it's it's done. He will bring to completion exactly what he wants to come about. And that brother is practicing what it means to be holy. That he's, he's more, it doesn't mean that his life isn't hard that his, his own family life isn't uh, like wrought with, with suffering, but his attentiveness was to God in the midst of all, all that he's experiencing. Now, it, appear, it appears to me that the church in the United States is too self conscious of itself right now. We are very focused on how uh, horrible we failed and how we just really should do better. Um, And what I want to tell you is that I don't think that that's how Paul would speak. Uh, And I think that that's a shame loop that this passage can break us out of if we listen. Um, this is a controversial figure, but I'm, I'm going to close uh, here. Um, Kevin Spacey gave an acceptance speech at a Glo- uh, Golden Globes a few years ago. Actor, and uh, he said he was talking to another actor who was on his deathbed that it meant, meant a lot to him. And I forget this older actor's name, but he said, "Mr. You know, old actor, what what you are trying to convey in your films will live on throughout the next generations." And Kevin Spacey said, that, that old man, he, he looked at me with the most serious face and said, I wish I had been better. And Kevin Spacey looked out at the crowd, you know, he had been, at that point, an actor, a 20-year-long career that was successful. And he said, we have to do better. And I think what Paul is saying here in this passage is that the place to look when you want something better is the Trinity. That if you focus on the things that you're involved with and that even the church is involved with, we will will accomplish things that we never thought we could accomplish and we'll still go to our deathbed saying, I wish we could have done more. I wish we could have done better. And the gospel says, you will never be as good as you desire. You will never accomplish what you've set out to do. You will never be as good as you impulsively know that you're supposed to be. So look somewhere else to Jesus, your blameless righteousness in front of God, in front of each other, in front of this world. That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will get the glory, not human beings. And when human beings give the glory, we get caught up into it eternally. That's what it means to live in a world without end. That you practice eternal realities when your attention as a human being gets focused on the Trinity. That's why Christians throughout the centuries have sung this ancient song. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning is now and will be forever a world without end. That's what this passage is about. That's what we are to be about. Amen. Father, uh, we ask that this uh, eternal reality that we see very clearly in the Trinity would be our focus. Today and into the future in that as you um, prune the church, as you prune us, as you uh, call us to repentance and and various aspects of our hearts, both individually and as a community, uh, that we would be delighted um, to say no to our flesh and to become holy, to become saints. Um, We know that you see us through Christ as being sinless and we're just trying to catch up and realize what because
0: you've done for us, you first you love love us. we want to give like you give like you